listeners, how do you talk to your students about the special love that exists between a woman and a Sasquatch? Or between an insect and a robot-powered building? And where and how do you determine which texts are appropriate to give students? On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Sarah Berger, a lifelong Vermonter and instructional coach in the Montpelier Roxbury Public Schools. We're talking about Dreadful Young Ladies and Other Stories by author Kelly Barnhill. We'll share our favorite moments from Barnhill's collection, as well as other collections of stories we've used with students, and our love of low floors and high ceilings. Come for the mysterious love affairs, stay for the power of short stories, and how they can help students find entry points for talking about complex concepts and issues. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this is Vermont Ed Reads. Let's chat. Thanks for joining me, Sarah. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Thanks, Jeannie. Glad to be here. My name is Sarah Berger, and I'm a Vermont native. I was an English teacher for about a decade, and I've also worked at the Agency of Education as our state English specialist, and I'm currently an instructional coach at Montpelier Roxbury Public Schools and lifelong reader, so happy to be here. I love talking to readers, and this is my favorite question to ask. What are you reading right now? Oh, I thought about this on the way in, and it's a slightly longer answer because yesterday I just finished a book called The Water Dancer by Ta-Nehisi Coates. I was lucky to get an advanced copy. It's not coming out till the end of the month, which made me feel very special. And it's a crazy book that combines historical fiction and sci-fi. Strongly recommend. Uh, also a very powerful book. And then yesterday I started a new book, which is part of the Rivers of London series, which is another wonderful sort of fantastical um, detective fiction by a guy called Ben Aronovich, who used to write for Doctor Who. So very much having like a a fantasy sci-fi moment in my reading. I can tell, but I'm really excited about that Ta-Nehisi Coates book. Is it Ta-Nehisi? Ta-Nehisi? I'm not sure. I'm sure we're getting close. It's a great book. He's a great writer. The Water Dancer? The Water Dancer. I can't wait to read it. It's really good. Thank you. So let's talk about this book, which is also on the, um, I, no, I don't know that I would call it uh, fantasy, but it's on the ghosty side. Yeah. there's. I mean, some of the stories are a little sci-fi here and there. It's, it's definitely a genre mishmash. So it's a collection of short stories with one novella at the end, full of really unconventional female characters. Even the title, Dreadful Young Ladies and Other Stories, clues you into that. So um, this was a title you selected, Mm -hmm. and I'd like to know why. What do you love about this collection? Well, the thing that attracted me to to the book was the title. I was like, oh, Dreadful Young Ladies. Like, that sounds like sort of Victorian or like what's happening and it's going to be interesting and about female characters Um, and I had actually never heard of Kelly Barnhill who is a pretty famous YA author. Um, I loved the cover even though I know you shouldn't judge a book by it and as soon as I started reading I was hooked because like you said it's unconventional female characters and I love things that play with genre and this really like a lot of the stories you think you know where you're going and then it takes a sharp left turn. So I think I read it, like not if not in one sitting, then like very quickly. It's a really engaging book. Let's talk about some of the um, really unconventional characters in this book. And mm-hmm. it's hard with short stories because you don't want to give too much away. I know. I mean, but I feel like we kind of give yeah. a little away. So I'm going to start with um, uh, one of the stories that I um, sort of fell for was called Open the Door and the Light Pours Through. And... Um, it begins as letters between two characters, Angela and John, and I think John is off at the war, and Angela has left the city to go to his mother's or something, and um, so there, it's not entirely in letters, right? Because mm-hmm. there's a letter, and then there's what's going on for real. Yeah. Which is so intriguing, because they're love letters, and then there's this stark contrast with reality. Should we read a little sure. piece of that? Um, it starts on page 33, but you can choose any selection from that that story. And I'd love to get a, a letter and then also um, what's really happening. What he wrote. My dearest Angela, I have spent weeks dreading what we must do today, and even as I write this, I am not entirely convinced that it is right. We are and have been and will be for the foreseeable future 
overrun with soldiers, which is to say, our dear American guests. Which is worse, love, their public drunkenness or their incessant leering? Far better, my darling, that you should be far away from this nursery of convalescing men and far from the multitudes of explosives that spin like vultures in the sky. London will be flattened before the year is up, if the rumors are true. How could we not be next? My family, yes, are tiresome. The house, yes, is drafty and unpleasant, but the grounds are lovely. And if you cannot paint the sea, perhaps you could paint the wood, or paint the sea from memory, or paint me from memory, or paint a memory of me. Dear God, my girl, but I shall miss you. Ever yours, John. And now here's what really happened. Specifically, he wondered if it would be her brother, James, beautiful, sickly James, James of the downy hair, James of the willowy limbs, James of the seafoam skin, James of the irritable lungs, James of the bloody cough, James, red-lipped, pale to the point of translucency and dead in John's arms. James, who loved him, but not like that. Mm. There are so many layers to this story. Mm-hmm. I thought of it as um, the perfect mentor text for students to write short fiction that is letters and then what's really happening. Yeah, I love the... I'm gonna, I think I'm going to pronounce this right, the epistolary novel. Like, I was a big Victorian literature person in college, and the idea of a novel that's letters and the reliable narrator. And this took it, and it's like, well, you have some unreliable narration and then some reliable narration. And I think it would be a really good mentor text. Also for things like point of view and author's voice and even the idea of a narrator. I could see that. Meaning that in this story, we have two narrators in their letters, and then we have this... Like the omniscient narrator. The omniscient narrator as well. Right. So three different points of view in right. this story. But also, do you, how do you trust a narrator? Like, who do you trust? And when it's letters, I think we're so used to just... Generally, like, the omniscient narrator is pretty common in a lot of the books that we read and that kids read. But when you get a letter, you have to remember that people don't always tell the truth. Well, and it turns out John's not entirely being faithful. Yeah. And, um, and our uh, Angela is not entirely drawn from accuracy either in her letters, yeah. right? So. Which I think you would need a kid who had a pretty, like a, either a solid understanding of you know, narration and point of view and things like that to understand that the author is playing with that here. I think it would, might be a challenging text for somebody who was already maybe shaky or didn't have a grounding in some of those things. I don't know. Or would you just let a kid jump in, even if you didn't know if they really understood what it meant to be a narrator? Hmm. Well, those are good questions because you could take it either way. It's discovery yeah. or it's um, uh, scaffolding. Yeah. Um, it reminded me of oh, when I was a school librarian, a lot of students really love ghost stories. And mm -hmm. many of these have that sort of uh, supernatural or mysterious element mm -hmm. that a good ghost story has. And it made me think of Mary Downing Hahn has written so many books that kids love that you're like, it takes a while for the reader to figure out what's happening. Um, and then the, I also thought of Neil Gaiman's book, The Graveyard Book. The Graveyard Book is wonderful. And it's a graphic novel and a, like a written novel, I think, right? You are probably right. I've only read the written novel, and it was one of my very favorites and one of my students' very favorites for a long time. But I love that it could be available in graphic novel as well. Yeah. I, I think The Graveyard Book would actually be something you could use as a primary text, potentially. And I think ghost stories, I've, everyone loves that. Like, that's what you tell around the campfire. Like, they're fun. Uh, and it's also sort of a safe way to be scared, you know? Like, it's scary, but it's a book. You can put it away, or you're reading it in the daytime in the classroom with your teacher. So I'm a big proponent of things like that for kids. So many times I thought of that when I was reading this book. They're not quite ghost stories, but they're just a little not... Um, they're just a little... There's a little magical realism, and there's a little supernatural element, and there's a little quirk, mm -hmm. that, a little turn of the screw, if you will, that yeah. makes you think a little... That makes you think differently. I'd love to know, like, what are Kelly Barnhill's, like, top ten 
stories that she loves or top 10 favorite authors. And like, I don't, I don't know if I always think that when I'm reading something, but here I was like, oh, I wonder what ghost stories she likes. Like, what do her bookshelves look like? Listener, we're going to tweet at her. We're going to find sure. out. We're going to sure. find out what Kelly Barnhill likes to read. And we're going to talk further about her as a writer, but let's dig into these mm-hmm. a little more. So another story that I found myself really smitten with was Mrs. Sorensen and the Sasquatch. Um, Mrs. Sorensen becomes a widow, and um, she takes up with this Sasquatch in town. And mm-hmm. the animals, all the animals, like, flock to her. So she goes to church with, like, a whole pew full of animals. And um, uh, the, the narrator in that case is the minister. Yeah, he's like the kindly old priest of the church that she's bringing these animals to. And people are um, drawn to her and perplexed by her. And, um, and she seems to like it that way. And as it went on, you're talking about unconventional female characters. Like, she's described as very beautiful. She's the pretty widow. You know, she's so talented. She smells really good. And all the men love her. And then as it goes on, she sort of realized that some of her qualities are otherworldly. Like, she's not just pretty. She's not just interesting. She can talk to animals, maybe. So it's like you, again, with a lot of these stories, you start off and you think it's one way, and then as it progresses, it's another way. Um, but because it's the narration of the priest, you get to see all the different range of reactions to her, because some people really don't like her. There's these three sisters who are kind of like busybodies, and they really dislike her. Um, and it made me think about, uh, I'm an animal lover, and anytime someone says they don't like animals, you rarely hear that. But to me, that's a big red flag, and this story is about the opposite of that. Like, what happens when you really, really love animals to the extent that you sort of fall in love with a Sasquatch? Right? As absurd as that sounds. Um, And my favorite detail there is that the Sasquatch, uh, he wears shirts but not pants. And he's very furry, so that's okay. But the fact that he's not wearing pants, like, horrifies people. And that's just, that's the kind of detail that I can see really being very funny for an older kid. It felt to me a little bit like a fractured fairy tale in that Mm. it was a bit Beauty and the Beast-ish, but Mm -hmm. the Beast stays a beast. She loves him for who he is. Yep. Yes. Uh, very playful and serious at the same time. Mm-hmm. I had a hard time sometimes knowing whether I was allowed to laugh or not, and then I just did. Yeah. Um, and so I, then there's another uh, story, a longer story, where the main character is an insect who wears a waistcoat. Um, and there, I guess there are two main characters in that one, and the other is an astronomer who may or may not be alive, who yeah. builds automatons, including the whole building is an automaton. Right. I thought that was the weirdest story in the whole collection. Yeah. And I think the first time I read it, I just read it sort of purely, and I was attracted more to the other stories. And then when I reread it in preparation for this, I was thinking through that lens of, well, how would you use it with students? And that's one that I maybe wouldn't necessarily use with students because it was so out there. Like, it's a love story kind of, between a grasshopper and a maybe robot. And that that one, to me, that was definitely set on, like, an alien world, right? Like, the other ones are in maybe a world like ours where there's a little magic or this or that, but that the the grasshopper and the philosopher, or excuse me, the grasshopper and the astronomer was definitely an alien world, and it was just didn't resonate with me as much. What did you think about it? I think I thought of it as a fairy tale world. Mm. And I think where it really hit me that it was a fairy tale is when the grasshopper's on this pilgrimage. I actually am not sure I thought of him as a grasshopper. Is it called the grasshopper? The insect. Oh, he's just the the insect. insect and the astronomer. But he has wings. We know he has wings tucked under his waistcoat. He's a very proper insect. They described his body a lot. She, there was a lot of yeah, the wings and the waistcoat, and how you put on clothing over an insect body, and the thorax and various parts. Yes, but the the grass, the insect goes on um, on this pilgrimage to find the astronomer. It's feeling called to the astronomer. The astronomer's calling, and I guess that's why you call it a love story um, to the to the insect. And when the insect arrives in the town, a farmer 
feeds him lunch, but then scatters off. Here, you can have my lunch, but I want nothing to do with your kind kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. and then the insect is taken into the house of this old couple, and it started to feel a little Hansel and Gretelish. I will yes. say no more, but there was this moment of like, oh, we're in a fairy tale. That's when it occurred to me, oh, I'm in a fairy tale. Mm. And so instead of an alien world. I think I went to the sci-fi. I was like, oh, well, this is clearly sci-fi, like when I'm visualizing the world. But you're right, it is more of a fairy tale. It's the waistcoat, really. Yeah, it was the waistcoat, yeah. It just felt, I don't know, and it also felt like a love story to me. And I was like, this is an unconventional love. But in keeping with the unconventional female characters, there is a lot of unconventional love in this. I think it'd be fair to say that that's a theme of the collection. I think that's also great for kids because how many love stories are just a boy and a girl and a boy and a girl and a boy and a girl and to kind of explode the notion of what love or what romance can be is I think good for all kids to see. Yeah, I love that. Mm -hmm. A relationship between a maybe robot astronomer and an insect is... That's also fine. Is also fine. Yeah. Yeah. Or a woman in a Sasquatch. (laughs) Um... So let's, let's, let's dig a little deeper into all of those um, exploded notions about the norms of being a woman. And so this story, which is early in the book, just intrigued me. And I love this notion of not only ex- exploring with kids the different ways you can be in love through story, but also the different ways you can be male or female through story. Mm-hmm. And um, so on page 65, the story begins... It was easy enough to lose a child by accident. To do so on purpose turned out to be nearly impossible. What an intriguing beginning, right? Not only does she want to lose a child, it flies in the face of all things we think about being womanly and motherly. Um, And so I'm wondering what other stories or even how that story helps to explode or explore some assumptions that we make about gender or about humanity. I think that goes back to the fractured fairy tales analogy that you drew where, you know, there's some women in this collection who are evil, like they're bad, they're the witch, they're the wicked stepmother. But then there's women who have those powers who aren't evil, who use them for good. Uh, And then you have women who, you know, might not be evil witches, but they're not necessarily good or they're not maternal. And it's an explosion of these really standard tropes that we still see all around us all the time. And so even though if you're going to explode those stereotypes, you're going to get some bad women out of it. So it's almost like this sort of shows the range of the way that women can be instead of saying, well, you know, this is an old evil crone and this is the young mother and this is the romantic figure, you really, you get everything. You get the whole range of the way that people can be, um, especially around motherhood. And I thought that was really interesting. It, they're complicated, messy characters mm-hmm. in these really interesting ways. And kids need to see that. Like, kids need to see characters who aren't um, so black and white or, you know, so obvious. Like, people need to... And I think even younger kids, they can grasp the nuance that like, oh, this person maybe made a bad decision, but they're still an interesting character. Or even the story you referenced, the woman who wants to get rid of the child, she's not sympathetic, but they do explain the rationale. Right, her sister. Mm-hmm. Her sister? I think this one, it's her boyfriend's child and she doesn't like the child but when she was growing up she Mm, was babysitting her sister and her sister while she was busy making out in the corner Mm -hmm. just flew away flew away why won't this kid just fly away why can't I lose this kid and so I think some kids could read that and they could just talk about that like this is a character who might have had some trauma and then they made a bad decision but they're not totally evil and then I think someone else could read it and they could get into the ambiguities of like well did the sister fly away is there really magic in the story or is there not magic and I love magical realism but almost more than that I love stories where you're not sure if there's magic or not I think a lot of readers are like me 
and we want surety. And so what I love is that you're, you're letting me know one way that we could really use these stories is to explore the ambiguity, yeah. is to interpret it in all the possible ways and um, find all the possible sort of um, uh, trajectories of the story, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I think I taught um, primarily middle school, but I remember my students getting so frustrated when I'd show them the multiple ways you can interpret a story, and a lot of people are like, no, there's just, what happened? I want to know what happened. I don't want to be unsure, uh, which is, in a lot of stories, you're not, and that's totally fine, but I like it when you really don't know. To me, that's a much harder trick as an author is to leave the reader wondering yeah. at the end. Well, it certainly um, doubles the half-life of the story mm-hmm. in your brain. I spent a it. lot of time pondering the, the, the stories from this book mm-hmm. um, because so many of them are open-ended or could be interpreted, uh, like you said, about the insect and the astronomer story, <laughs> either in a fairy tale world or on another planet right. in a science fiction yeah. setting. Um, so that leads me to ask, how do you how you've taught middle school? How mm-hmm. would you use short stories in a middle school classroom or in a high school classroom? Um, I think so often we want kids to read n- novels, but what what does it look like to use short stories in the classroom? Yep. Uh, I think you're right that people mostly want to use novels, and I would really push people towards a mix. In part, there's so much to teach out there, and especially for kids who are not the speediest readers, which we all know has nothing to do with intelligence or how much you love a text, but some people read more slowly and that's fine. Saying, you know, I have to do these five books this year can sometimes really um, like hamstring us. Uh, I know that I've had books that I've taught that I'm like, oh, this book is going on and on and on. And short stories can be a great way to either supplement or sometimes replace, because I think especially stories like this, you can get the same level of text complexity, you can get the same themes, you can dig in. And it's also a lot easier to differentiate teaching with short stories and teaching with a novel, by and large. Um, I've heard writers say that it's much harder to write a short story than a novel because you really have to pare everything down. Um, and I think there's just, they offer, a lot of, excuse me, they offer a lot of opportunity for play. So this particular one, I would definitely be very choosy with middle schoolers. Mm-hmm. And these stories, I think a lot of them, there's some sexual content, most of it, you know, implied or off screen, so to speak. But, you know, you want to be careful about what you're exposing kids to. But there's other stories in here that I would definitely uh, teach with kids. And some of them I might want to do the whole class. Um, something I love to do is to say to a kid, hey, I think you'd really like this. Will you give it a whirl? Um, and help kids choose texts that they might fall in love with. And I think saying, hey, will you give this short story a whirl is a much easier ask for some kids. And like, hey, would you give this entire novel a whirl? Um, You also reference mentor texts. I think it would be so interesting to do this as part of the unit on mythology or gender or families or any number of things um, and just kind of keep it in your teaching toolkit. Conformity. Oh, oh, that's interesting. Um, So I want to go back a minute because I loved, you said so many things that were so interesting and I didn't want to interrupt, but I'm thinking about both differentiation and choice. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about what might it look like to give students a range of stories to choose from um, and um, so that kids have choice, right? Maybe they select into small groups, but maybe some kids read a story all on their own. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about um, that differentiation piece, too, that we can choose stories at different of different interests, but also different reading levels mm-hmm. or different complexity um, in order to plan for student readiness. And then I'm wondering about um, formative assessment. So thinking about in a proficiency-based system, it's so much quicker to read a short story and then understand if your students are identifying theme or able to summarize the story or um, able to pick out imagery or whatever it is you're aiming to do with students in a shorter text so you get whether they're getting it before you dive into a longer text. Yeah, that's a great point. You guys can't see, but I'm nodding really emphatically at all of these. So um, the first part of what you said about um, choice and uh, differentiation, I think that it's really important to remember that 
you want to differentiate and you want to give different levels of text complexity and make sure that kids are reading at a comfort level, but sometimes you come across something that you just know a kid is going to be so interested in that it's okay for a kid to choose something that might be out of their quote-unquote level, you know, because they love it. Like kids can, I love reading YA, which is, you know, I can read at a much higher level than that, but sometimes I love to read YA. Oh, me too. Right, you know, and also there's that kid, like I've, I remember I had a short, a Raul Dahl short story that involved cars, and I had a student who was an emergent reader, and he loved that story that was really not, quote unquote, at his level. So I think it's, I think choice is so great to remember when we're talking about differentiation, and short stories are a great way to do that. Um, and then also, like you said, in a proficiency-based system with formative assessments, which I'll talk about that till the cows come home, you're right. It's much easier to say, I need to figure out you know, if this child can identify theme. And it's, it's possible to do that in a short story, and it's much harder to do it with longer texts. Yeah, it's a bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, I love what you're saying about reading levels because I do not believe in them. I think they can help us find a text that works for a kid sometimes, but we should not limit kids to their reading level or their, no. no. I almost think it's almost more relevant outside of the English classroom because let's say you're in science and you need kids to understand, you know, the geology of a volcano. They should be, if they're reading for information, they should be reading at quote unquote their level, but you know, and everybody's different. And if it's a topic of interest, who cares what your reading level is? Yeah. We'll all work harder. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's, um, let's think about some of those story collections or stories you might use with students. So I had one that I read recently that came to mind for me, um, which was um, Black Enough by Ibi Zaboy, which is a collection of short stories by writers of color. Uh, and a lot of them are about... What does it mean to be black? What are all the ways to be black? And so I think like this book, it explodes some uh, conventional thinking or some stereotypes in really interesting ways. And there are so many great stories in that collection. There's one by Jason Reynolds that was just so simple and lovely that I just um, fell head over heels for it. But just thinking about uh, race and ethnicity through that lens of short story, I thought it was a really interesting um, could be an, a really interesting book to use with a class mm-hmm. and identity. Yeah, well, and like we said earlier, you know, grappling with with something scary, be it a ghost story or challenging your perceptions about race, doing it in a text is a really great way to do it because you can do it at your own pace and you're you know in a safe space and you can discuss. Um, I know is Jason Reynolds also an educator? I feel like I've seen him on Ed Twitter. And he, or maybe he is just a, not just, maybe he's also an author, but I I recognize that name from Ed Twitter. Oh my goodness. We love Jason Reynolds Mm. here at Vermont Ed Reads. He is the author of so many books, mostly for middle grade students. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of them also for um, more young adult audience, um, high school audience. Um, So he wrote Long Way Down and um, he was a co-author on All American Boys and... um, so he's an African-American uh, writer extraordinaire and a huge proponent of um, diverse and inclusive literature for young adults and middle grade students and just one of my heroes. I've seen him speak and I just adore him. It's so important. Like I love the canon. I was an English lit major, but I'm also all for exploding the canon, you know, and especially in a state that is so ethnically homogenous. Even in schools where there are no children of color, we still need to be reading diverse texts because that's a reflection of what most of the world looks like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what other texts might we explore in this way? Um, so I'll mention two that I, that I wrote down. Um, I actually referenced one of these earlier, the story about cars. So Roald Dahl, everyone's favorite creepy children's book author, um, also wrote short stories for adults. And I've taught with a couple of them. There's a variety of collections. Some of them are definitely not appropriate for children. And maybe even some adults would be pretty weirded out by them. But he has a couple that I really liked to teach in part because they have pretty complex themes. Um, the one with cars is called The Hitchhiker. And you know, there's no violence. Um, 
you know, no sexuality or anything like that. And the vocabulary and plot is pretty simple, but the themes are complex. So I really love that it was like a low floor, high ceiling for kids. Um, and I also love The Hitchhiker because it talks about class and if you can tell what class somebody is because of the way they speak. Mm. And I thought that was really resonated with a lot of our kids. Um, he has a couple other ones, so I'd encourage you to check out his short stories for adults. And a lot of them are very short. So you can really use them in like one class period. I wonder if you could, um, for our listeners for whom it might be new, talk a little more about that concept of low floor, high ceiling. Oh, sure. This is one of my favorite things, and I say it all the time. So low floor, high ceiling, I do not know who came up with this idea, but it wasn't me. Uh, It's the idea of arranging activities or units or lessons or anything you do such that anyone can enter the lesson but you can make it really challenging. So it's almost like we're not just we're not just going to differentiate, we're going to have a full spectrum in our lessons. So a concrete example might be this story where most kids even if you were a couple grade level grade levels, quote unquote, below in your reading, you could understand this story, which then allowed you to talk about extremely complex themes because we have brilliant kids who might struggle with reading and a lot of the time they're cut off from talking about the interesting stuff because they're reading you know less complex excuse me less complex texts or um I also really love teaching Shakespeare and I've taught Macbeth more than any other text and that would be one where I could have kids who could watch the movie and really understand what was happening and then discuss complex themes so the low floor easy entry point high ceiling you can, it can get very complex very quickly. What I love about that is that the complexity is not dependent just on decoding. Exactly. That um, if you're a slow decoder, so I think a, a lot of times when we read whole novels with kids, some kids get behind and then we're discussing things they haven't read yet and they right. can't enter into the conversation. And so uh, even just by having a shorter text, we're lowering the floor, right? right? While we are still able to delve into that complexity. Yeah, you're maintaining rigor. And I don't want to like, you know, dump on novels. Like, please read novels, read novels with your students, but consider other ways to do that low floor, high ceiling, because too often we equate reading ability and intelligence, and those two things don't always go hand in hand. And I had students who were, like I said, emergent readers who were capable of really complex critical thought and they should have access to those conversations. Right, and decoding and comprehension are two different things. Yeah. I found audiobook support for students in reading novels to be crucial for kids who had um, learning disabilities that made decoding really hard for them, but mm-hmm. they were so into audiobooks. And so when I was a school librarian, part of my role was to expand the number of audiobooks we had so it could support student readers yeah. and to put them on iPods and iPhones and devices so that kids had access to them. Well, and I think we, we get really hung up on like, oh, this kid needs to read. And yes, they do. But you really want to make a lifelong learner. And if you turn out adults who are listening to audiobooks on their drive to work every day, that's success. Like That's a great way to keep people engaged in literature because at the end of the day, you know, you don't read To Kill a Mockingbird so you can recount the plot blow by blow. You read To Kill a Mockingbird so you can talk about complex themes, and that's the end goal. And to develop empathy. And to develop all these, yeah, all uh, the things. Peter Langella was on the podcast last year, and we talked a lot about reading as a strategy for uh, increasing empathy, and we definitely need more empathy in this world. We do. There's a lot of research backing that up, too. That's, you know... It's really important, and you do need to understand every single plot point and decode every single word perfectly to develop a sense of empathy. To walk around in somebody else's shoes for a little while. Yeah. So let's talk about some Mm -hmm. other shoes we might walk around in. Let's see. Uh, I thought um, there's a great story collection by Ellen O. of Diverse Voices called Flying Lessons and Other Stories that I thought I would add to our list as a possible, it's a great for middle school, it's perfect for yeah. middle school, it's a perfect text, a collection of short stories that might be of use to our listeners and their students. I've never heard of that. What's it about? Um, it's, I'm not sure that there's a common theme except that they're diverse authors. So stories from a variety of authors uh, that um, t- that create this middle grades collection from diverse voices. That's awesome. Yeah, right? Well, and the collections are nice too. Like it's nice to have a collection that's all by one author 
but when you get a collection that's by a set of authors, it makes it even easier to you know, help students pick or really tailor a story to what you're working on in the classroom. Yeah. Um, and then I have one more, which is Sabrina and Karina by, I believe it's pronounced Callie Fajardo Anstein. She's also on Twitter, so I'll tweet at her and ask her to correct me. She is wonderful. Um, I think uh, her short story any further west, I believe was the f one of the first short stories I taught with kids and one of the first short stories I taught that was maybe not explicitly for kids, you know, but it had really complex themes um, and also dealt a lot with poverty, which I think is important. And when we talk diversity, I, I bang on this drum a lot, but it's important to remember the class diversity we have here in Vermont. And when we say people should see themselves reflected in texts, we shouldn't shy away from, you know, stories and books that deal with people in poverty. Listeners, you can't see me surmising at Sarah, but that's what we call it, <laughs> smiling with my eyes. I'm nodding my head in agreement. Um, I love that as a way of um, talking more about the lived experience of our students and having them see themselves in literature. Um, I'm also just really taken with this idea when we take a short story who's intended on the audience as adults and say to kids, this is for grown-ups, but I think you can. I think you can handle it. Or this is this was written for adults, but you guys are awesome, and I, I think you've got this right. Yeah. And the uh, motivation that brings out in kids is is huge. Yeah. And something I would also add on to that when I would do these with the kids, I'd say, you know, this is for adults. So if you don't understand a hundred percent of this, that's okay. I don't expect you to. So freeing kids up to kind of be unsure or be okay with not completely comprehending a text and kind of leaning into that confusion or discomfort because I think children internalize the expectation that when they read something, they have to understand it perfectly or it doesn't count. And I really want to encourage everyone to read things that are hard and challenging and that they don't get 100%. So I think there's a lot of value to bringing in stuff that might be for adults um, although another thing I thought as I was reading this is you want to be sure that it's appropriate. Like you can definitely read things that are for adults, but there are stories in here that I would not yeah. do in a middle school classroom and would maybe even be cautious about doing in a high school classroom. Yeah, you need to be choosy. Mm -hmm. um, I agree with that. But I love that idea of like, you're not going to understand all of this, but you're going to read it and understand what you understand, and then we're going to figure it out together. Yeah. And that's okay that you can, and it's, you know, it's not an arithmetic problem. Like there's not necessarily a right answer to what the theme is or whether you're in a fairy tale or on an alien planet. Like you can have multiple interpretations and that's great. Yeah, to me, it's that's art. The mark of, yeah, that's the mark of a great piece of art. If everybody agreed on what it was about, it would be incredibly boring. Right. When I was a school librarian, um, one of the big hits still, maybe it still is, was The Hunger Games. And I always thought we should be reading that with the lottery. Yeah, that that the Vermont connection story, too, right? And there's so much about those the the premise of the Hunger Games that seems built on the premise of the lottery, and I just thought that would be such an interesting um, pairing to discuss with students. Yeah, and that I remember there was a lot of pushback around the Hunger Games, where people were like, "This is too violent. Kids shouldn't be reading this." Um, I remember uh, giving a high schooler the graphic novel Watchmen because I thought it would be really up his alley and he wasn't much of a reader. And the parents were not very happy because there was one scene of drug use. Mm. And of course I apologize because they're the parents and that's their decision. But I remember thinking, what if the first time your 15-year-old child encountered the concept of drug use, it was a drawing in a book? You know, like the Hunger Games, like that violence in there and, you know, all the intensity and all the, all the attention, like encounter it in a text where you can really grapple with it and not, you know, if the first time you see that stuff is not in a text but in real life, you're going to be much less equipped. Yeah. Yeah. These issues exist and our students know about them and yeah. they, they need help um, sort of thinking about them and um, exploring them safely. Yeah, and in a way where there's an adult who's kind of guiding them and they can talk to them because again, all these students have the internet. Yeah. So there's always that. Let's um, hear, uh, I, I think you wanna highlight another story from Dreadful Young Ladies and I wanna talk briefly about the novella at the end yes, as well. Yes, that sounds wonderful. So 
This is the story, I think it was my favorite, and I think it's also potentially the story that I would read with students. So it's Notes on the Untimely Death of Ronia Drake. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but I think it is pretty age appropriate. And I also love it because at the heart of the story, there's this woman, Ronia Drake, and she is no longer with her husband. I don't think I'm giving away any spoilers. And what I love is that she's okay. Um, if you will, I'm just going to find the passage and flip Please. to it. Please, yeah. So the section I'm going to read is not actually about Rania missing her husband. It's about now that um, she is not with her children 100% of the time because she and her husband are no longer together and what she does to fill her time. Could you tell me the page number? Oh, sure. It's on page 133. And the story is Notes on the Untimely Death of Ronia Drake, which is a little bit of a spoilery title. Then Ronia Drake did not miss her children. She painted, she worked, she ran, long runs along the river or the creek or from one end of the city to the other. Sometimes she ran for hours without tiring. She felt unfettered, faceless, and unnamed. Lost, yes, but there was a freedom in being lost. There was a freedom in abandonment, too, if you thought about it right. So there's so much going on there. It's so beautiful, and also, this is not the traditional narrative of the divorced woman who's sitting there sad. And I really liked that. Like, she seemed to me, Ronia Drake, to be one of the, my favorite characters in the entire book. Yeah. It's a great story. It's a good story. So one of my favorite characters is from the end of the book in the novella. Mm. And um, I love the novella is called The Unlicensed Magician. And um, the main character in this story is Sparrow. And already that title, you just you want to read it. Right. Why is the magician unlicensed? Who's giving these licenses? What does it even mean to be an unlicensed magician? So intriguing. And Sparrow is a great character. Sparrow is um, a young woman, maybe middle school aged, really. She... I th- yeah, I think she's like puberty, on the edge of puberty. And... Um, she lives in this world where there's a comet, the Boro Comet, I think mm-hmm. it's called, that passes by periodically. And during the time of the Boro Comet, the women who are pregnant, some of them give birth to magical children. Mm-hmm. And the minister, the minister? Yeah, I think he's the minister. He's called the minister of the... Uh, Harry Potter variety, the minister like the head of government. It's a very 1984 world. That's what I thought yeah. about when I read this short story. Oh, George Orwell's 1984. Oh, yeah. So the minister collects the magic children to magic himself a tower to reach the comet. Yes. But Sparrow eludes the minister. I'm not going to say much further than that, but I, I will say that I just adored Sparrow because um, she reminded me of all that kids are capable of. Hmm. One of my key values or beliefs in the world is that kids are capable of so much. They are so good and they are so powerful if only we get out of their way. And um, I loved this section um, where Sparrow's in the church unseen she's often unseen but mm-hmm. occasionally she is seen because she's hiding right she's hiding yeah, from she the minister spends her life in hiding and um she has a couple allies her father do you want to say something about her father i just loved her father he's one of those flawed characters he has i, I think i can say he has something of a drinking problem and he loves sparrow and sh- shares that love with her and i just i again when i was reading that i was like i think a lot of kids might have someone in their life who's not perfect, but you can still love that person and they can still love you. And I just, you know, Sparrow's father's great. He's also called the junk man. The junk, yes, which is really, yeah. And then her other sort of ally in the world is um, Marla. And she's the egg lady. Mm -hmm. She sells eggs. And Sparrow's magic has a really positive effect on the village, but I'm going to read one instance of Sparrow's magic in action, starting on page 202. Martina Strange, two rows up, starts to cough. The cough tears through her chest and sends rhythmic waves coursing over her back. 
No one responds. She's been coughing for years, and she is old. It's only a matter of time. The junk man's daughter stands up. She snakes through the pews. No one notices. She lays her hands on the old woman's back. The girl is standing so close to the man sitting behind Mrs. Strange. She is practically in his lap. He doesn't notice. The junk man's daughter feels a pleasant heat between the skin of her hands and the coat of the woman. She feels the coat thin and give way, and the flannel shirt, and the thermal underwear, and the thin jersey that probably belonged to the old woman's husband years ago. She presses until she is skin to skin. There is, the girl notices, a cancer wedged in the lung, black and twisted and oozing. The heat on her hands is so hot she can feel her fingertips start to blister. She closes her eyes and doesn't move. The woman shudders. She lurches. She gasps, clasps her hand to her mouth, and coughs so hard the sound might have come from the center of the earth. Once, twice, and at that third cough, out of her mouth flies a bird, black and twisted and angry, oozing pustules for eyes, talons gripping something bloody. The congregation gasps. The bird hovers in front of Mrs. Strange, all rage and malevolence, spirals four times inside the four walls of the church, and with a tremendous squawk, shatters the third window on the east side and flies out of sight. So good. I love Sparrow so much. She's constantly feeling love for her community, and she loves them so much sometimes it hurts her. And she does all these, like, this is a big good, right? Mm -hmm. She, like, cures this cancer. But she does all these little goods, too. She makes people's hens lay more eggs. She she um, has this, like, subtle positive impact on a community. And I think about our young people have the potential to have great positive impact in their communities. I mean, it's she's doing random acts of kindness. Like, sometimes it's deliberate, like what she does for this woman in the church which parenthetically, just the bird and the pustules, it's, it's so dark, too, which is great. Yeah. I, um, but she's also, you know, just as she walks around, you know, she's, people's apples are shinier, and, and no one can see her, but I think, you know, about our kids moving through their communities, and they're smiling, and they're helping someone, and they're picking up trash, and, you know, you can really draw a lot of parallels, even if you don't have incredible, awesome magic. I think you can still be that sort of, positive force of kindness and I, you know I've certainly known many children like that so yeah I think the novella is also really great and teachable for kids right that's a kid yeah. level novella and it made me think of the girl who drank the moon let's a lot talk of more themes. about that yeah so um I didn't realize this and I'm ashamed of myself not really but I'm a little bit like hey I'm a librarian I should have known this let's talk about Kelly Barnhill's other work so I had not, I also didn't know, and I found this book at a conference for English teachers years ago that was just all this stuff was being given away, and I said, oh, what a cool title, I'll take it. So I had no idea, and I read The Girl Who Drank the Moon after reading this, and I felt like there were a lot of parallels, like there's magic, the magic is sort of forbidden, there's benevolent yet flawed creatures who help the magical girl and a key component of her magic is that she spreads kindness and that's a great message because it helps to have magical powers but you can also just spread kindness as a normal boring unmagical human um, <laughs> thank goodness yes i know and what have, what have you read the girl who drank the moon or what i do you know haven't about it? no i haven't but um the the cover is really familiar i know it won the newbery award mm -hmm. so it's gonna go on my to be read pile it's great it's just a delicious little confection of a book but like the stories in here it's not this like perfectly sunny like pollyanna disneyfied fairy tale like there's darkness and there's complexity and I think kids really respond to that because that's what the real world is like. Well and that's what the original fairy tales were like oh, too, yeah. right? A, a, a place to to explore the dark side a little bit. Um, it occurs to me that these one of these stories from Dreadful Young Ladies could be a great companion text if you were to read that book in a reading group oh, or, in definitely. A class or as a read aloud. Yeah. 
Well, and I think kids are, if you look at a lot of, uh, you know, famous and beloved children's literature, like there's elements of darkness. I was a huge Anne of Green Gables fan as a kid. And that story hinges on the main character being an abandoned orphan. Like, you know, kids, kids want to see texts that reflect the real world in some ways. I was in Prince Edward Island this summer, and um, we listened to Anne of Green Gables mm. as we drove around the island because it's set there. And um, and as we um, were driving around listening to it, I I heard it in a different way than I had as a kid. I heard the trauma. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid reading it, I heard the um, joy of it. Yeah. But I could feel Anne's pain a little yeah, more. I think time. a pivotal plot point is that she's not sure if the family who've taken her in are going to keep her or not, which is dark. And I've read every single thing that that author has ever written, and a lot of them are really scary and sad. But that—that's what I wanted to read as a kid. I, you know, I wanted to read stories about kids who experienced real things. Um, and I think that's, like I said, I think that's what kids respond to is texts that reflect the way the world really is, maybe with a little gloss of magic over it, but that don't cover up the dark parts. Harry Potter wouldn't be Harry Potter if his parents hadn't been murdered by Voldemort. Harry Potter is very dark. Yeah. 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 Hunger Games? What are some of the other, I mean, some of the other big YA, uh, like all the dystopian fiction, which is a whole other conversation, like that's what interests people. That's why we love ghost stories and fantasy. So listeners... We want to know, are you reading short stories aloud or with your class in some way? Are you giving your students a range of short stories to explore? How are you using short stories in the middle grades classroom or in the high school classroom? Let us know. Give us a holler. Send us an email. We want to know more about what that looks like. I'd also love to see if there's any short stories or collections you love that we somehow didn't touch on today, what those are. I always want new stuff to read, new stuff to share with educators. Excellent. Or are you sharing um, stories written for adults um, with your readers, with your learners? Let us know. Sarah, thank you so much for bringing this glorious title to my attention and for taking the time to talk to me about the mystery of it and also about low floors and high ceilings. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This was a great experience and I'm glad we got to talk about this book. I'm Jeannie Phillips and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you to Sarah Berger for appearing on the show and talking with me about dreadful young ladies and other stories. If you are looking for a copy of Dreadful Young Ladies and Other Stories, check your local library. Special thanks to Audrey Holman, audio engineer extraordinaire. Where would we be without her? To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.tarrantinstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at vtedreads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont. 